when I was pastoring my second church. I was in my early 20s. I was serving Gateway Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. And it was my first Sunday there as the new pastor. And I decided at the end of that service that I wanted to close our service in prayer by asking the congregation to stand and let's recite the Lord's Prayer together. And I thought it would be very ministerial of me to ask everyone to rise as I walked down the middle aisle and we recited the Lord's Prayer together. I had it all worked out in my mind. And so as I did... And if you know the Lord's Prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, what could go wrong? But instead, I asked everyone to stand, let us recite the Lord's Prayer. And as I started walking down, I had my microphone on and I said, Our Father who art in heaven, how great thou art. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I could only think of the lyrics of the hymn, How Great Thou Art. And I stopped dead in my tracks could not remember the rest of the Lord's Prayer. The church then breaks out in laughter. And I thought this was my first and probably my last Sunday as the pastor of this church. Who did we hire that he doesn't even know the Lord's Prayer? Thankfully, one of my deacons just started and finished where I had messed up. And I'm just going to confess to you, ever since then, I have been nervous about leading in the Lord's Prayer without having it right in front of me so that I can glance down and make sure I don't get it wrong. I was so embarrassed that day. And you know, sometimes pastors talk about subjects that can be a little embarrassing. And I remember one of the reasons I don't teach children is because when I was uh, feeling called into ministry at the age of 17, one of the things I was asked to do by my church was to work in the children's ministry, get some experience, help out, until we were in one of those Old Testament passages that talked about circumcision and a little child wanted to know what that was. I said, you go home and ask your parents. Sometimes we just don't want to talk about certain subjects because it's a little uh, embarrassing or we're afraid of what someone may think or we're afraid someone might be offended or might misunderstand. But you know, Jesus never found himself embarrassed to proclaim the truth of God's word and God's standard for our lives. We're going to see that today as we continue in this sermon that he preached at the very beginning of his public ministry. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus already in the Gospel of Matthew has been presented to us as the rightful King of Israel, the Messiah that the Old Testament had prophesied would come. Uh, He has been baptized by John the Baptist at the River Jordan and heard the voice of his heavenly Father cry out, this is my beloved Son. He has begun his public ministry in preaching and teaching and doing miracles. He's gathering his disciples. He even chooses 12 apostles to be a part of his inner circle. And then he begins to teach them, his followers, what it means to be a part of his new community of people dedicated to him as Lord and Savior and to God as their Heavenly Father. And he he doesn't pull any punches when he lays out the standard of what it means to truly be a righteous person. And he's not embarrassed to talk about things that are practical, nitty-gritty, down in the practical aspect of our lives. Today, he's going to talk to us about adultery and about lust, something that maybe other people would be quick to shy away from. Jesus is not embarrassed to stand up publicly and to talk about these important issues. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's important for us to understand what he has to say to us today. If it was just Ricky talking to you, it would be my opinion. 
But what we're going to hear today are the very words of Jesus himself, our Lord, our Savior, the Son of God, the one who would go on to predict his own death at the hands of the Jewish leadership and the Romans. But he would also predict that not only would he die, but he would rise from the dead on the third day. And I've just decided if he can predict that and pull it off, I'm just going to trust anything else he says. And I'm going to follow him with my life as best I can through the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Not perfectly, by the way. I don't stand before you today and preach as an expert or one who's always gotten this right. I do speak to you today as a fellow struggler and a fellow traveler on the road to life with Jesus. And maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can listen to what he says to those of us who are, and you can understand a little better about the standard he holds us to. And you may be thinking at the end of this sermon today, I'm so glad I'm not a follower of Jesus. Because it's tough, it's hard what he says to us today about these important issues. But do you know why he doesn't hide the truth from us? It's because he knows that true life, the blessed life, is not doing our own thing. The true life and blessed life is in doing what God has designed us and called us to do. To find life as God intended Jesus put it this way. He said, I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly. I'm not trying to steal the joy out of your life. I'm not trying to to hurt you, manipulate you. I'm trying to help you discover what true life is all about. So let's dive into this, well, touchy subject. How about that? Matthew chapter 5. Some of you will get the pun on the way home. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. Jesus declares, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now we'll stop there for a moment because what Jesus is doing is he's, he's quoting word for word from the Greek translation of the Old Testament Ten Commandments. He's quoting to us the seventh of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You've heard that it was said. It's been preached for generations. From the time of Moses giving the law, we know the truth. You shall not commit adultery. And there is a positive reason for this negative command given to us by God. The the positive reason is this seventh commandment protects the sanctity of the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. Sometimes people will say, I'm I'm not going to get married. It's just a piece of paper. It doesn't really matter. But marriage, as God designed it, is more than just a piece of paper. It's more than just a ceremony. It's more than just pretty pictures. It is a covenant between a man and his wife before a holy God that the two become one. And they pledge to each other fidelity, lifelong fidelity. They enjoy a union with the two of them that is unlike any other relationship or union that they will ever experience in any other relationship of life. That's why whenever we go back to the book of Genesis, for example, in chapter 1, we, we hear in verse 27 that God created them In his own image, male and female, he created them equal and created in the image of God, which means we bear some, not all, but some of the characteristics of God. 
That just as God is spiritual, we're spiritual. Just as God is a relational being, we are relational. Just as God uh, has will and volition, we have the ability to make choices and be in a relationship with Him. But there's something mystical about that union of a husband with his wife that pictures the, the beauty of the marriage. And later in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says that's why the two become one flesh. Jesus even reiterated this and reaffirmed this in his own ministry. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, uh, whenever he was asked about divorce, he said, before you can fix what's broken, you got to go back and figure out what was intended in the beginning. You need to understand what the original design was. And so he goes back and he, he quotes from the Old Testament book of Genesis. Jesus answered in Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to, literally in the Hebrew, be glued to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate Jesus is saying the reason that God gave marriage is because of this wonderful union of a husband and a wife that is sacred and it's beautiful and it's precious and it must not be violated because it rips two people apart whom God has joined together. There are all kinds of betrayals in this world, but I can't think of a more hurtful betrayal than that of a spouse, unfaithful, that wounds deeper than any other kind of wound. And Jesus says, this is why you've heard it said from the beginning, you shall not commit adultery because of the damage that it does spiritually and emotionally. And sometimes even physically as it rips families apart. The people of Jesus' day, however, who wanted to consider themselves religious, looked at the seventh commandment and they would check it off if they had never physically had sex with another person's spouse. And they would say, hey, I'm not an adulterer. They had reduced it to the act of adultery, and therefore they could excuse every other sinful attitude in their lives. And they, they made it simple. It's very clear. You're either an adulterer or you're not. You've either done the deed or you haven't. No matter how you view sex or how you view other people, as long as you haven't done the deed, you are not an adulterer. And these people, especially the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, some of them at least, were, were claiming this sense of moral and spiritual superiority over other people because they had not done that. Well, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, and I'm all with you on this one. I've never committed adultery. I'm not like all these other reprobates. I'm holy. I'm good. I'm right with God. I've kept the seventh commandment. But what they don't realize at this point is that Jesus knows the heart of each and every person. And Jesus moves from just the act of adultery to the attitude that leads to adultery. In verse 28, Jesus continues, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus moves beyond the act of the flesh to the attitude of the heart because he wants to get to the root problem. He wants to get to the heart of the problem. 
If you're driving down the road on a family vacation and the check engine light begins to flash on the dashboard of your car, do you really solve anything by pulling out a piece of duct tape and covering the check engine light and just keep driving? Does that really solve anything? No. Somewhere you, pull, you probably need to pull over, you need to turn off the car, get out, pop the hood, and let your wife take a look at that and see what the problem might be. That's what I would do. That's all right, Donna, what do you think? Because you've got to get to the root of the problem. Just masking it and covering it up and ignoring it doesn't really solve anything. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, those of you who are patting yourself on the back that you've kept the seventh commandment, it was meant for more than just the physical act. It was also to guard against the attitude of your heart. It was to elevate the sanctity of the marriage relationship and the purity of that relationship. And he said, for I'm telling you, if a man has looked at a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the reason Jesus gets to the heart of the matter is because he knows that's the heart of the problem. Verse, Mark chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus would later say, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. Too often religion focuses on the externals, but a relationship with Jesus means we let him get into the heart of our lives and he deals with us there. He transforms us not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Now, before we think about what Jesus is condemning, let's make sure we understand what he's not condemning. Jesus is not condemning the admiration of beauty or even the natural human sexual drive. The first who ever had a sexual thought was God himself. He's the one who gave us this capacity for sexual intimacy. And after he had created Adam and Eve, even with this beautiful gift of sex, he said, it is very good what I've created. Very good. So he's not saying that if you look at a person and you say, they're attractive, they're beautiful, they're handsome, that you've all of a sudden sinned. Listen, if you're a man and you go to the beach and you're laying out at the beach and a beautiful woman walks by and you didn't notice either you're lying or you didn't see her <laughs> or you're dead and we need to call the lifeguard. Because God's wired us that way to admire and appreciate beauty. It's not the look that's the problem. It is the lingering look with the intent to have what is off limits to you. That is the problem. Sometimes people say, well, the problem with the Pharisees is that they didn't realize that the seventh commandment was just external, but Jesus was thinking about internal. No, even, even the Ten Commandments talk about the internal attitude of our heart. Remember the last commandment of the ten? You shall not covet. You shall not have a strong desire for that which is not yours. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So, so even in the Old Testament of the Ten Commandments, there was this understanding. There's a difference between looking and seeing and admiring and lusting with an intent to use another person as a sex, sex object. 
If the act of adultery uses another person as a sex object, then lusting views another person as a sex object. So I just want to make it clear that it's not about normal, God-given sexual drives. Uh, too many young men have felt so guilty and so ashamed that, that they have a sex drive. I remember hearing one person say that he had talked to an 18-year-old. He said, I got saved recently, but nobody told my glands. You know, he said, I'm just, I'm just being honest. I'm still dealing with the sex drive. Well, that's not a problem. It's what we do with those God-given desires and drives that often lead to problems. What Jesus is condemning is the lustful look, the lustful look that views another person off limits to them as a sex object. And off limits means any sexual activity outside of the marriage union. Now, that's not popular in our culture, but that is the standard Jesus is calling us to. He says that was the original design for sexual expression between a husband and a wife. I liked how John Maxwell defined lust. He said it's any thought that if you actually carried it out would be a sin. But if you start thinking about something that if you actually did it, it would be a sin, then to think like that is a sin. A.B. Bruce wrote in his commentary, the look is not casual but persistent. The desire is not involuntary or momentary but cherished. That I'm harboring this lustful look after this other person, imagining intimacy with that person that is forbidden by God and would break my covenant. And the lustful look breaks the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, I wouldn't limit Jesus' words here merely to men. He's speaking to men because in this culture, men were typically the initiators of these kind of relationships and the perpetrators of lustful look. Thank God we don't have that problem today, right? Uh, where, where men just don't have that problem. No, Jesus knew that he's talking to a bunch of men that need to hear this, especially the 12 apostles that he has chosen to be his. This is the standard that if you follow me, you're going to live by. But women can lust as well. Women can use and view others uh, in a wrong way as well. King David probably is the most famous example in the Old Testament of someone who committed adultery. You remember King David, the king of Israel? He, he should have been out at leading his troops in battle, but instead he's laying up in bed all day. In the evening he gets up, walks out on his balcony, looks over the balcony. He sees a beautiful woman. It wasn't that he saw her that was the sin. It's that he lingered and he continued to look and he began to lust after her. He asked his servants, who is that? And his servants told him who, who she was. She is the daughter of Eliah. She's the wife of Uriah. In other words, king, that's someone's daughter. That's someone else's wife. She's off limits to you. You shouldn't be viewing her with lust. But instead, he said, you bring her to me. And he used his power over her to take advantage of her, to sexually abuse her. She gets pregnant to cover it up. He has her husband murdered so that he can then take her as his own wife. God sent the prophet Nathan to confront him. Remember those famous words of the preacher to the king? You are the man. You've done this wrong. And in this moment, David realizes after a year of trying to hide his sin, how grievous he has broken God's heart and it breaks his. 
If you ever want to know how he handled his failure, go back and read Psalm 51 in the book of Psalms, and you'll hear his broken, contrite heart. There is forgiveness after failure. It is not the unpardonable sin. But there were damages done that never left David's home. His family was never the same because of the consequences of his sin. And I want to say something before I move on. It seems to me here in verse 28 that Jesus places the responsibility on the one doing the lusting rather than the one being lusted after. Too many young women or women have been made to feel that they did something or dressed in a way that invited a lewd comment, a cat call, a sexual harassing comment, or a touch. And too many young women have been made to feel that if they had just done something differently, this wouldn't have happened, rather than recognizing the responsibility is on the one doing the lusting. Now, the Bible speaks about modesty. I'm not saying there's not a place for modesty. But in our culture, too often men have said, well, if you didn't do this, I wouldn't have this problem. And Jesus will not allow that. He says, you've got to deal with it. If you've got this lustful look, it's because you've got a problem in your heart and you've got to deal with it. You've got to deal with it. Now, what do we do if we say, I'm struggling with this? Well, Jesus gives us a radical solution. You're not going to like this. Let's continue. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Okay, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I remember reading this as a teenager, (laughs) thinking, what does that mean to me? (laughs) What do I do with this? What's the homework for this sermon? Well, I want you to understand Jesus is not calling for physical self-mutilation. Even though there have been those throughout church history that have taken these words very literally. Probably one of the most famous was Origen of Alexandria, Egypt, who died around 250-something A.D. But because he struggled with lust, he actually had himself emasculated because he thought that would solve his problem and he discovered and regretted later that didn't solve anything. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using an extreme exaggeration to get our attention and to make his point. And the extreme exaggeration doesn't mean, oh, then what he's saying isn't important. No, it means it is important. He's trying to grab our attention in such a dramatic way He's saying, I'm not calling for self-mutilation. I'm calling for a radical reorientation of your lifestyle. Jesus is saying, I want you to watch what you watch, and I want you to watch what you do. If your right eye causes you to stumble, then pluck it out and throw it away. Now, if he meant this physically, you've got a problem, because your left eye is just as good at lusting as your right eye. If your right hand offends you, cut it off, throw it away. Well, you got a problem. you got a left hand. 
So that's not the problem. Remember, he's already told us where the root of the problem is. It's in our heart. It's inward. It's, it's, it's not the physical. It's the spiritual. It's the emotional. It's the habitual. But he's giving us some practical advice here. So he's saying if what you're looking at is causing you to stumble and causing you to have these lustful thoughts, then stop looking at that. Act as if you don't have eyes anymore. If what your hands are causing you to do, or another time he would even throw in uh, feet. And if your feet, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. So if it's your body that's causing you to do some, some things, stop doing those things. I like how John R.W. Stott put it in his book, Christian Counterculture. He, he was commenting on this passage and the other one where Jesus adds the word foot. He says, what does this involve in practice? Let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, the objects you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things that you do or your feet the places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. This is the meaning of mortification, putting the members of your body to death when it comes to sexual sin. Jesus is saying, you need to change your life. You need to change how you view other people. You need to avoid those things that you do or see that cause you to be tempted in this way. Get serious about sexual purity. In fact, Jesus is calling his followers to a lifestyle of radical sexual purity. That's the bottom line today. Jesus is calling his followers, those of us who call him our Lord, to a lifestyle of radical sexual purity. Does that mean this is easy? No. I don't know if it's ever been more difficult than it is today. Because we are bombarded with opportunities to lust. But if Jesus is speaking to you about some things you need to put out of your life, he's saying you need to do it and you need to be radical about it. Is there a relationship that's causing you to stumble? Then you need to end that relationship. Is there internet usage that's causing you to stumble? Then you need to get some accountability in that area of your life. Are, are there some things, some pleasures that are okay for other people, but they're causing you to stumble? Then you need to get those things out of your life. I'm not even this morning trying to come up with some list today of do's and don'ts because as soon as I do that, I become a Pharisee. I become a legalist trying to impose a standard on you that may not be standard you need. Maybe something I'm struggling with, but maybe you're fine with it. But if it's causing you to stumble in this way, then Jesus says, you need to have radical surgery. Cut some things out of your life. Do away with some things. Stop some things. Prohibit some things that prevent you from living a pure and holy life and being the promise keeper like God is to you. You're created in His image, just like He is always faithful to you. He wants you to be faithful and pure in your relationships with other people.
Many of you know I love cars. I'm just a car buff. Always have been. Not, never, uh, you know, uh, gotten as heavy as some of my friends are into the the car hobby. But I just love cars. I love reading about cars. Love driving cars. Love test driving cars. Love keeping up with cars. And you probably know that that car manufacturers every year spend millions upon millions of dollars in research and development. And one of the areas they focus on is in fuel efficiency. They put their their models in these massive wind tunnels where they can test every bit of airflow over the surface and beside and under the vehicle. What they're looking for are ways to lessen the drag of the air on the vehicle as it goes in motion. If we can reduce the drag, then we can take advantage of the horsepower or the battery power in this day and age, and we can increase fuel efficiency. I mean, they spend millions of dollars. There are people, this is their full-time job, to watch air go over cars. Sign me up for that job, you know? And if a car manufacturer is so serious and so dedicated about shaving off any little thing that might slow down the forward progress of their vehicle, how much more should we as followers of Jesus be willing to spiritually cut out anything that would slow down our forward progress of faith with Jesus Christ in living for Him and being the people that He wants us to be? We need to become more intent To follow the example that Jesus has given us here in Matthew chapter 5. And not to let me off the hook or not to let you off the hook. Let's just also be honest. We are all sexual deviants in one way or the other. We have all sinned, the Bible says. We've all gone astray. We've either sinned in deed or we've sinned in thought. But the good news is, We have one who is our Lord and Savior, who is tempted in every point as we are, yet he never sinned. In fact, he offered his life as a sacrifice for our sin when he died for us on the cross. And he took our punishment. He died our death. He received our judgment that we deserved for our sin. And he rose from the dead on the third day victorious. And all who put their faith in him, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, I love the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, because even though we're Christians, we're still going to sin, we're going to mess up, but if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can leave today knowing that you can't make up for the past, but today you can say, Dear God, by your grace and your help, I'm turning from my sin. I want to live a pure life in your sight. I cannot do this on my own. I need your strength. I need the example of Jesus. I need my church family to help me. I need some close people in my life that will help me because I want to live for you. I know this out of heaven, I won't be perfect, but I want to be serious about this radical lifestyle of sexual purity you're calling me to. If you're struggling and you've been struggling and you say, I've heard this sermon before and I just fail and I feel worthless and hopeless, let me give you something, a little acrostic that has helped me. I wrote this down in my journal one time uh, several years ago and I've used it as I've looked at my own life and I've tried to help other people. It's the word habits. If I'm trying to break a bad habit and create a new habit, 
First of all, I need hope. I need hope that even though maybe I'm struggling, there's hope with Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Do not give up. My problem today is not with people who don't struggle with sexual sin. It's those who have given up struggling. My problem is not with those who do struggle. It's those who have stopped struggling. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Keep fighting the good fight. We also need accountability. The devil's tactic is to divide and conquer, to get you off alone where you feel like you can't share this with anyone, you can't be open with anyone, you can't tell somebody, I'm struggling here, would you help me here? And if he can keep us alone, then he's got us defeated. We are told, confess your sins to one another and be healed. We need someone in our life of the same sex that we can say, would you be an accountability partner with me in my life in this area? You also need biblical instruction. The world has many voices telling you what's right and what's wrong, but as followers of Jesus, there's only one supreme authority for our beliefs and our behavior, and that is God's Word. And we've got to let that be the standard for our lifestyle. You also need intentionality. Just hearing this awesome sermon today is not enough. You're going to have to do something with what you've heard. You're going to have to be intentional to make some changes. The Bible was not just given for our information. It was given for our transformation that we will live by God's power differently. You also need time. Sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is not a one-time deal. It is a lifelong process. And it's not like I get saved here on a graph and then it's, whoop, I'm more like Jesus. You know what the Christian life is like? It's up and it's down and it's up and it's down and it's up and it's down. But hopefully over the course of our life, we can see an upward trajectory by the power of God's Holy Spirit shaping us and making us into the image of Christ. You need time. Don't give up. And you need spiritual strength. I can't do this on my own. You can't do this on your own. Whether it's on this topic or any other topic when it comes to living for Jesus, we cannot live the Christian life. It's impossible. All we can do is yield ourselves to Jesus and let him live his life through us. He's the only one who ever perfectly lived the Christian life. And we've got him on our side. And we need his strength through the power of the Holy Spirit let me give you some resources that may help you. Here at our church, there's a, a support group. We don't talk a lot about it because we try to give uh, men and their families anonymity, but it's called Faithful and True. It's for men who struggle with sexual addictions. If you want to know more about that, you can go to the website, 904true.org. 904true.org. We also have a licensed pastoral counseling service here at Fort Carolina Baptist Church. I had breakfast with Dr. Kyle last week. See, I've learned it's cheaper for me to just take him to breakfast, and he doesn't know it, but that's my counseling session. So I just take him to breakfast on a regular basis. And he's available. You can go to our website, fcbc.life, and you can look under our ministries tab, and you'll learn more about how to contact him directly if you would like to do that. Celebrate Recovery. By the way, Celebrate Recovery, which is a Christ-centered recovery group started by Saddleback Valley Community Church in Orange County, California, we started a group here, and we just celebrated this last Friday night our 15th year anniversary. I'm going to ask if Donna and Greg Heron, the leaders of our Celebrate Recovery program, would you stand up, and would you give them a hand for how God's using them? Thank you so much. 
They will tell you everything and more that we've talked about today. Celebrate Recovery is the answer. It's open to anyone of any hurt, any habit, any hang-up. doesn't matter what it might be. could be depression, could be people-pleasing, could be an eating disorder, could be a sexual addiction, could be drugs, could be alcohol, could be smoking. I don't know what your hurt might be. Maybe a past hurt where you were abused as a child. Whatever habit or whatever hang-up you may be dealing with, Celebrate Recovery is the answer. And we would encourage you to go to our website. You can learn more about it there, including the 12 Steps of Recovery. And then Covenant Eyes software is good software that uh, if you're struggling with the internet, it helps you to stay accountable with a partner that will then know if you visit a site you're not supposed to visit, you don't want to visit. And you've got a person who's not on your case, they're on your side to help you. That's just one. And then, of course, our life groups here at church. The reason we ask people to get into a life group is God didn't wire us to do life alone. He wired us to do life in community, and we need each other. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we thank you. We thank you for the words of Jesus that are sometimes hard for us to hear, but we're grateful that he loved us enough to tell us the truth and to give us help by drawing us to himself. And we pray that today that we would take this this call to radical sexual purity to heart, and that we would live lifestyles that reflect that. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit working within us. Would you help us now, Jesus, to live that blessed life that you've called us to? Only by your strength and by your grace can we do it. And Father, we praise you in advance for what you will do in our lives by giving us that life and life more abundantly that can only be found in a relationship with Jesus. And God, if there's someone watching today or there's someone in this room today who has never received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, let this be the day for them. They'll never be good enough. None of us ever can be good enough. We can't earn our good works into heaven. All we can do is come to you broken sinners receiving your free gift of eternal life through Jesus as we place our faith in him. So if there's someone that needs to do that today, God, help them to take that next step, to turn from their sin, put their faith in Jesus, confessing him as Lord and Savior. And we'll praise you for the difference you make in their life. And we thank you for our church being here to help them in their journey with Jesus. May they not be ashamed to let me know or to go to our website or leave a comment on Facebook and to tell us, Today I've received Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.